0: Let's pray. Lord, take your word planted deep in us. Sanctify us by it, through it, with it. Train us. Reproof us. Correct us. Teach us that we may be adequate for every good work this is your word. It is through your word that you change lives. We pray that you will change us this morning, Lord, for your glory. Amen. <clears throat> this morning we return to the book of James. So if you have your Bibles, please open it to James chapter 2. I did a Two-week break as promised. I was uh, looking at two aspects of the kingdom. We looked at the Old Testament expectation of the kingdom and then uh, last week, was it the week before, we looked at the New Testament perspective of the kingdom. If you weren't here for those sermons, I encourage you to go back. It's online. Listen to it. They will inform your understanding of how James views the kingdom as he speaks about the kingdom in one word. So it's important for us to know the background to why he mentions the kingdom. So I do encourage you to go back and listen to that. So as we enter James 2.5, for one last time, I want you to remember some of the truths that was mentioned, especially Old Testament and gospel aspects regarding the kingdom. Some of the New Testament, actually none of the New Testament books have been written by the time James writes his book. So the only information he has is the words of Jesus and the Old Testament. So that lies behind his understanding of the kingdom. So some of that will bear upon what we will look at this morning. So we find ourselves in verse 5 of James 2. And the immediate context here deals with... With the sin of discrimination, or the sin of partiality, or as I've called it, the sin of favoritism within the church of Jesus Christ. James says, do not show partialities. It is plural. So he condemns any kind of discrimination, regardless of what it is. All kinds of discrimination, or favoritism, or partiality is sin. That is in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Verse 2 through to 4 gives us the illustration, it's a historical illustration of what partiality or discrimination look like in their context. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet this fall. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? That's a historical illustration of what discrimination looked like in the context. So he's not saying that this is all that discrimination is. Merely pointing out one aspect of it. Now, in verse 5 through to 13, James gives us the reasons to avoid partiality. The first reason can be found in verse 5 through to verse 7, which is focused on God's electing love. The first reason why we should not show partiality is because God elects sinners. God's electing love should drive out partiality in his community. Secondly, we have God's royal law. The standard of how people ought to interact, God's people ought to interact with one another, is found in in God's law. So you have these two reasons that James provides. God elects God's royal law. And we will look at the one this morning. We've already looked at the first part of us five. Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen the poor of the world? The answer is yes, and I will Return back to that just to give us a groundwork to move from. So we found ourselves in the portion that deals with God's electing electing love that should eradicate discrimination in the community of faith. That is a theological reason why we denounce discrimination. In our day and age, there is a variety of various means of discrimination that takes place. I'll start with a frivolous one. There are some of us that drink Frisco. It's okay to discriminate against them. I'm just joking. But people separate for lesser things. Homeschoolers versus non-homeschoolers. Breastfeeders versus non-breastfeeders. Watching TV versus not watching TV. Watching YouTube versus watching Netflix. You get the point. We discriminate on a variety of different reasons. Now, more commonly, it's mask wearing versus non-mask wearing. Those who wear frown on those who don't, and those who don't frown on those who who do. And in our culture, we have medical discrimination. The vax versus the unvax. Discrimination is everywhere but it should not be found in the church of Jesus Christ. We will focus particularly on how God's electing love of sinners is the ground upon which the believer's hope is built. This truth is stated in verse 5. Read verse 5 with me. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him. Has God not chosen those who are poor to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? This is a powerful truth. And it is the kernel that instills present hope in a hopeless world. You will see how that works out at the end. While Christians are being discriminated against and while they suffer now, James shifts the believer's attention on the promises of God and the work of God in the life of the believer. So let's consider what it means to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. So the last clause or the last two clauses um, in this verse I am going to focus on. I will not be looking at... um, though which he has promised to those who love him I'll mention it but that will be for next the next sermon so in order to make sense of what these two things are what does it mean to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom we need to understand what James is saying in terms of the poor in this context while some have taken this the poor in verse 5 to mean all the poor in the world there is however a limitation placed upon who the poor is. So why is this important? It is important because often you will hear something like this God is on the side of the poor. Or quote, the church must care for the poor because James says, We has God not chosen the poor in the world, therefore the poor becomes a responsibility of the church. End quote. Is that what James is saying? All you will see in commentaries, the duty of the church is to care about, quote, global warming because our emissions affect the poor, end quote. Hmm, I don't know how we got there, but that is, that is a view. So what James then is saying is you need to reduce your carbon footprint so that we can take care of the poor in the world. No. Heck no. He's not saying that at all. Liberation theologians, as well as some evangelical commentators, sing the same tune when it comes to the poor in this verse. If you've read anything on liberation theology, especially James Cone's work on um, uh, society and the kingdom, I think it was. I forgot the title. He says that God has given the church the responsibility to care for the poor. That means you should be going out and whoever you meet that is poor on the side of the road, you should take care of them because it's our duty. But is that what James is saying? Some translations don't help with this. King James Version says, the poor of this world, the NASB follows suit, the NRSV Um, So, the New Revised Standard Version says, the poor in the world. The contemporary English version just butchers the text and it says, God has given a lot of faith to the poor people in the world. No, it's not what it says. However, if you look at verse 5, if you have a pen, take a circle or make a circle around that little word, in the world. In the world. It does not exist in the original language. It should be in italics, but it is not. Which means it should read something like, God has chosen those who are poor, the world. Now that doesn't make sense in English, and so they provide clarity, which causes confusion. Poor in the world, or poor of the world. That doesn't help. The way that the Greek here is structured, gives the idea the poor to the world. That's what it means in its literal sense. Those who are poor to the world, and there's two interpretations of that. Those who are poor from the perspective of the world or those who are poor in the world because they are poor to the world. They have no investment in this world. However, regardless of how you think you should take it. There are three internal truths that we must consider as we contemplate the poor from James's perspective. Number one, the poor are chosen to be rich in faith. It tells you something about who the poor are. Number two, the poor are chosen to be heirs of the kingdom. It tells you something about what the poor receive. Number three, the poor are those who love God. In fact, Poor, in this context, is synonymous with those who love God. Listen to the text very carefully. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has God not chosen those who are poor to the world to be, See so the outcome of the choosing, to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? Who is he promising to? The poor. So God promises those whom he have called to participate in the blessings that he will give upon those who are poor because they love him. So first of all, what I think here, takes, what is taking place is that James gives the idea that the poor are actually believers. So where does James get this idea from? Well, keep your hand here. Go over to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew, sorry, not 3, Matthew 5. Which is also known... As the Beatitudes. In the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says in verse 3. Blessed are the poor. In spirit. Look at the next line. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See a close proximity between poor and kingdom. Take note of that. James understands what Jesus says here. And he puts it in a synoptic format, in a synopsis. Not a synoptic. In a synopsis format. James is not quoting Matthew. Why is he not quoting Matthew? Matthew has not been written yet. James precedes Matthew by at least five to eight years. So if he is Writing about what Jesus said, he's not quoting Matthew who puts the very words of Jesus down. So James is quoting the sayings of Jesus, things that they were regurgitating at the time before anything else was written. So he's saying the same thing as Jesus, but not saying the exact words of Jesus. Make sense? So, go back to James. Keep that in mind, close proximity of poor and kingdom. Now listen to what James says. Has God not chosen the poor to the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? That is a restatement of what Jesus is. You have the kingdom. It's been granted to you. You are citizens of the kingdom. Jesus is not saying this is how you become a child of the kingdom. No, this is what you have as a child of the kingdom. In Jesus' mind, the poor in spirit are those who recognize the absolute need of God's righteousness in the person of Jesus Christ, which they don't have. So they rely on God's provision to be right with God. And he says, those who are poor in spirit, they recognize their state before God. They have the kingdom. In Matthew 5, verse 10, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you step back in the book of James, what is he talking about? Trials, sufferings, and hardship. Why is he mentioning, counting it all joy? Because this group of believers in Acts chapter 8, they had to flee for their lives. Why? Because of the testimony of their faith. They were persecuted because of what they believed about Jesus Christ. Same context. Same message. So James is merely restating in the words, the, merely restating the words of Jesus. Which means he is Not saying that God supports all the poor in the world. That is not the point. But those who are poor in spirit, only they will inherit the kingdom. This does not mean that just because you are poor, you get the kingdom. Not at all. Instead, it means that those who understand their poor state before God, they get the kingdom. Those who recognize their weakness and the inability to satisfy God's righteous demand and depend upon God's provision of His Son, they receive the inheritance of the kingdom. There is, however, a second element to it. James hints it in the way that he, he structures his grammar. And that is, poor by means of a worldly standard. Those who are poor To the world. So that last phrase, to the world, means that they, from the perspective of the world, are also poor. James is saying that your condition now is not your final condition, this is not your final position in life. But what does it mean to be heirs of the kingdom and rich in faith? Now I'm going, to go, I'm going to answer that. So keep that in mind. That's the question I want to answer. What does it mean to be rich in faith and heirs in the kingdom? But before that, I want to lay the groundwork for the weight of that statement. There is an interesting development that begins in James chapter 2, verse 5. I say begin because it's the first book written in the New Testament. James draws out something about God's electing love. Notice what he says. Has not God chosen those who are poor? That is election. God set apart some to be saved for himself, by himself, for what purpose? So that, this is the reason, this is the purpose, we, those who are elected, can be rich in faith and receive the blessing of the kingdom. So, election results in two things. Rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Now let's consider this. What James then implies is that the new covenant includes both faith and the promise of the kingdom. you get that? What God gives to those whom he chooses is both faith and the blessing of the kingdom. Both are true. So let's think about that. God's choice of the poor implies that when they enter the new covenant, they receive faith and inheritance. Now, I will explain that. Just hold on. I will explain what faith, rich in faith and Israel kingdom mean. Let me just pause here for a moment. There are a number of heresies that get spawned from this verse. For instance, it's not God's desire... Or will for your life to be poor. That's a lie. God. Has had. In the history of. Saints. Poor believers. God has taken those who were rich. And made them. Poor. It is a heresy to suggest. That Christians must be rich. It is heretical to say that God wants. All Christians. To be rich. Just because James says that God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith. That's not what it talks, it's talking about. It's not material wealth that is in view here. Now, by God's grace, some of us, or some of you I should say, may have abundance, may have more than you need, may be classed as rich. But that doesn't change the reality that God chooses us despite our cultural condition or social status. James is not saying that all Christians will be rich, but that they will be rich in faith. And that is important. There's a qualifier here. So what does it mean to be rich in faith? And I will answer that question now. The word here, rich, means to abound, to abound. He defines that which exists in large amounts, normally used of those who are wealthy in this world, to have more than they need, to have an abundance. But here the sense is that God has given us a different kind of riches. You can see a little bit of a contrast taking place here, because in this context he speaks about a rich man that comes in with clothing that you don't normally wear on a normal day has a ring to show off his riches. And in contrast to that, God says, I've chosen you and given you as a part of my choosing riches that is completely different than what they have in this world. God says that the riches of this world is nothing compared to the abundant, overflowing faith that he has granted to you. In other words, God has given his children overflowing faith that is in value far more worth than riches or wealth. We sing a song, I'd rather have Jesus than what? Silver and gold. James is not saying that God is giving you silver and gold, but is giving you riches in faith. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be His than have what? riches untold. Can we say amen to that? Now I'm, I'm asking, can we actually say amen to that? Are we willing to say that yes, Jesus above everything that this world has to offer? Some of you are being tested in that ground right now, right? Why can we sing this with confidence? Because God has overwhelmingly given us abundance of faith that far exceeds any material wealth. In other words, if you have all the riches of this world, but have not faith, you have nothing. But if you have nothing and possess the riches of faith, you have what? Everything. You have all you need for life. Let that sink in. So then, if God chooses us to be rich in faith, what does it say about faith? If God chooses... And the net result of his choice is that you get faith, abundant faith, overwhelming faith. What does it say about faith? It must be a what? Gift. Gift. Amen. It is granted. Paul didn't come up with a theology of election. Neither did Calvin. God elects. Now what James does is really interesting. He balances the gift of faith with the offer of the kingdom, the riches of the kingdom, or being heirs of the kingdom. This brings me to another theological point. Whoever said that James is not theology, uh, is not theological, he did indeed. <laughs> Two Martins, Martin Luther and Martin Debelius. You don't need to know the second, but you do know the first. Both of them said, no theology in the book of James. Uh, no, there's, there's weightiness. So secondly, the election is uh, and its outcome are intimately connected and that's in this verse as well. Take note again. Has not God chosen the poor in the world or to the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? What is the outcome? Rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom. Election results in something. The outcome here is that God grants not only riches in faith, but also the blessing of the kingdom. Both are true. One is not physical or literal and applicable right now, and the other one spiritual. Both are equally true. The reality of the kingdom is as real as the faith that God has given. Now some astute men would say, yeah, but faith is spiritual, Right? It's a spiritual thing. So therefore the kingdom must be spiritual. But don't miss this theological gem here. Understand that election is not without purpose. Reaching faith as of the kingdom of two results of election. Election always has an outcome. I did a small little study to look if this proposition is true. Look at Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. Allow me to just step out of James for a short period of time as we consider the connection between the outcome of election and God's electing love. Ephesians chapter 1, notice in verse 4. Even as he... Chose us in him. So he's God the Father. Chose us in him is God the Son. Why? Look down at verse 7. Um, sorry, no. Look down in the end of verse 4. That we should be holy and blameless before him. Chose us. So that we should be holy and blameless. think about this. What does God require for us to be in His presence, to be accepted in His presence? Holiness and blamelessness. So how are we able to achieve holiness and blamelessness? Only if God elects. How does God elect? He tells us, He chose us what? in Him. The way that God grants us holiness and blamelessness is through Jesus Christ. So then God chooses us through the Son to be what God requires. In order for us to be in a right relationship with God, God has to provide the thing that He requires. Get that? In order for God to be pleased with us, He has to provide the thing that He requires us to be pleased with us. Makes sense. So God requires holiness and blamelessness and he does that by means of election through the son so that we can be the thing that he requires us to be. In other words, the outcome or the result of election is not possible without election. Election is not possible without the son. God's choice of sinners results in the reality that undeserving, incapable sinners should and would be transformed to such a degree that they would become holy and blameless before him. God's purposes is in his act. If God chooses, he's going to bring about the thing that he requires. So what he requires, he also provides. Chapter 2, verse 4 through to 10. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ again. You see a connection between God providing life and Christ. Look at verse 7. So that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us again in Christ Jesus. So God saves us so that in the coming ages he may display his immeasurable grace throughout eternity. Not as we are put on display but that his grace is put on display in us. The emphasis is not on the elected person, but on the one who elects. This is further stated in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Why did God predestine us? Take note, to be conformed to the image of his son. What does God require of us to be in a relationship with him is to be like his son, because his son is holy holy. And righteous and blameless. And so in order for God to have a relationship with us. He has to make us like his son. And so he predestines us to be like the son. He brings the thing about which he requires. That's only possible by means of election through the son. What he requires he provides. One last proof. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. But you are a chosen race. Elected, that's a word there, an elected race, a royal priest, a holy nation, a people, for his own possession. Why? Yes, the purpose statement that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who is that Christ, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What does God require of us? Matthew twenty eight nineteen to be faithful, to declare the excellencies of Jesus Christ. What God requires, he provides. We are recipients of both the electing love and the resultant effect of election. The two are not separate. Election always has a purpose. We declare or proclaim him, not the church, not ourselves, not a theology, but him. Paul says we preach him, not ourselves. Over and over, scripture affirms that election is not the end within itself, but a fix to election is the resultant work of God. This emphasis... Is found throughout the pages of Scripture. So often the discussion of election focuses on the elected. Scripture doesn't do that. That is the wrong focus. The focus is not on you. The focus is on the one who elects. Even in the book of James. Has not God chosen? What is the effect of that? What is the result of that? To be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Election magnifies the glory of God in all respects. But when we minimize this truth, we minimize the glory of God. In verse 5 of James chapter 2, what is the outcome of God's electing love? Well, two things. To be rich in faith and, and heirs of the kingdom. Both are true. Both are part of the outcome so let's think this through abounding in faith is connected to but not the same as but coupled to being an heir of the kingdom it's connected to but not the same to have the one you automatically have the other what precedes being an heir of the kingdom it is to have what abundant faith so then To abound in faith implies God calls, God grants the ability to flourish in faith and connected to that is to be an heir of the kingdom. Now, let's think about this. If faith then is granted, what does it say about the kingdom? It is also then what? Given. Granted. Indeed. James does not need to explain this clause. Heirs of the kingdom. Why? Just a couple of years, about three to four years prior to this, Jesus spent 40 days, 40 days to speak about the kingdom. There's no greater theology class than that. I I had some good theology lectures on the kingdom, but it cannot be compared to 40 days getting it from Jesus himself. Because he's the king. He knows exactly what his kingdom is going to be like. And so he spends this time telling them that the kingdom will come. And at the end of their discussion, they say to him, Is it now that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? They still expect it to happen. Acts chapter 1, I believe it's verse 7, 7, 6 or 7. So at this stage, James does not need to explain what the kingdom is. He does not need to explain what the heirs of the kingdom are, because they know. We, however, do not fully understand the implication of what that means. And that's why I did the two sermon series on what the kingdom is. James nearly needs to say, you will inherit the kingdom. So what does it mean to be an heir of the kingdom? Heirs means to obtain, uh, one who obtains something as a possession. Heirs are made to share, as are given a promise, but not the reality until the fulfillment. So you are an heir, but you don't have it yet. The promise is made, but you don't fully possess it yet. So since the heir is a promise, what does it mean about the promise? Is the promise The promise of inheritance future or is it now? Is the promise of the inheritance future or is it now before you jump into answering that? Listen to the text. God has chosen those who are poor to the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. It seems like he's saying that you have both now, right? Because you have faith now, which means you also have the kingdom now because you're heirs of the kingdom. That, that seems to be what it says. So I'm going to punctuate that, and I'll try to explain it from a different perspective. Does it mean that having faith equals having the kingdom now? Because if that's a reality, then it means we are reigning right now. If you remember some of the sermons from uh, some of the things that I said uh, last time, to be in the kingdom, to be part of the kingdom, to be in the kingdom, Means and implies that Christ is reigning and we are reigning with him. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory? It doesn't make sense without verse 13, right? But before I read verse 13, this implies a future reality. Listen again. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance, so we possess the inheritance, until we acquire, so we don't possess it, possession of it. To the praise of his glory. Read verse 13. In him you also when you heard the word of truth. What is that? Believe. The gospel of your salvation and believed. What is that? Faith. In him were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Who the Holy Spirit is a guarantee or the guarantee of our inheritance until. We acquire possession of it. Make sense now? So you've been given faith right now to believe through the gospel until when? You get the whole package. So the spirit is given as a promise, as a guarantee, as a seal. Listen, I'm only giving you a short portion of what is to come. You're only getting a drip or a drop in the ocean of the reality of the blessing. That implies that it's future. Take note of the last, second last clause here. Until, in verse 14, until we acquire possession of it so we don't have it yet. Look up in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Wait a minute, this is confusing. Well, to obtain doesn't mean you have it. It just means you've been granted permission to get it. It's like when I say to my son, you... um, You have obtained a bicycle for your birthday, but his birthday is two months away. Does that mean that he's got it? No, it will be given to him. It's just not there yet. So then the inheritance has not yet been received, but it has been promised. And that's the point of obtaining and the promising or the acquiring of the possession. But there is something that Paul makes here, which James also makes. I should say there's something that James makes that Paul also makes. There is a connection between faith and future hope. The present reality of experiencing faith now is linked to the fact that you have a future hope, a future anticipation of the inheritance. We have present faith while possessing a future hope of the kingdom. Paul says now we have the spirit to show us that we will absolutely receive the entire promise until we acquire." So now the Spirit is with us until that time. I know that opens another can of worms and we can hash it out on Wednesday. The gift of the Spirit is the promise that God will fulfill the promise of the kingdom. The inheritance is related to the kingdom. Being an heir relates to receiving the promise. If then the kingdom has been established right now, then we are not only heirs but we are Ministers of the kingdom, servants in the kingdom, and therefore reigning with Christ in the kingdom. Again, I don't see it. Not yet. If God promises in giving the spirit that we will share in the kingdom, then you can guarantee it. You can put a dime on it, as the Americans would say. It will happen. To share as an heir in the kingdom, in reality, is to have a future Hope. Go back to James. What James is saying here is that there are two keys that is a synopsis of the kingdom of Christ. And both are important. You need to have abounding faith in order to be an heir of the kingdom. You need to be called by God so that you have abounding faith in order to be an heir of Christ. The kingdom. He is not stating anything new that the other Bible passages do not state. God chose you to partake in the future blessing of the kingdom, to be recipients of abundant faith because of the hope that is in you. For this reason, when James says that your experience now is saints. Sorry, I should say Paul. Paul says that your experience now as saints in this world cannot be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. He's talking about the future glory that will come in the kingdom. So, what does it mean to have abounding faith and to be an heir of the kingdom? Well, the two are connected. In order to be an heir of the kingdom, you need to have abounding faith. You need to be granted access into the kingdom. To be an heir of the, of the kingdom means to have a future hope that this life is not the end. I'll point that out in a moment's time. Why is this important for the context? Turn back to chapter 1 verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various Kinds of trials. For you know that the testing of your what? Faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What are the end? Trials. Why does James write about abounding in faith? Is it merely a mirage? Something that you will receive or is it something that you have now? You have it now. James mentions abounding in faith because life is hard. Their lives were filled with affliction and hardship. They were surrounded by an ocean of trials. They were being purified by the the afflictions that God has given them. And James says this is not the end. God has given you both and an unfading reward. There is something greater than this life. So if anyone offers you your best life now, say no thank you. I don't want this life now. I'm waiting for a better life with my king. We have something far better than this life now. To offset their present hardships, James gives them a future glimpse of what is to come. God chose you to receive the abundant, overflowing faith and the future blessing of the kingdom. Overwhelming faith is given because of the nature of trials. It is ongoing, growing faith. Because trials can be overwhelming at times. This is why James says, Count it all joy knowing that the testing of your faith will produce ongoing endurance. That is what it means to have growing faith. God has given you abundant victorious faith and you will overcome. When Jesus says that those who trust in him will endure, he means it. Those who are truly saved, they will endure. Why? Because God has given abundant faith. Overwhelming faith. Victorious faith. Growing faith. Yes, hardship is hard. It's in the word hardship. But the reward is sweet. Consider the words of Jesus. If you are persecuted for my name, rejoice for great is your reward. Rich in faith and a blessed future hope. The hope of the kingdom is given because this life is difficult. This is why he looks beyond this life and he says, you have what God, uh, you have all you need to make it through this life that is abounding faith to the next, the heirs of the kingdom. Suffering and affliction is set against the future promise of the kingdom. Like many of the other New Testaments after New Testament writers, after this, James looks to the return of Christ and the blessing of the kingdom as a comfort to saints in troubled times. Turn over to chapter five. Look at verse seven: "Be patient, therefore, brothers." That's believers. Until the coming of the Lord. Be patient. What's the context? Their wages are withheld. They're being dragged to courts. They are being unjustly treated. What he does not say is. uh, Let's take up a lawsuit and sue them. Let's try to undo their wickedness. Let's let's ram um, a parliament. Let's, Let's do social justice. None of that is found in the book of James. And you won't find it anywhere in the New Testament. What it does say is endure. Be patient. Why? Because the Lord is coming. That is your hope. If your only hope is justice in this life, you have no hope at all. See, the mention of the believer's future inheritance in the kingdom is not given to the saints as a mirage. Something that's there that's not really there. If God is doing that, he's saying that, no, the kingdom, it will come, but it won't really come. But it will come, but not not really. It's there, but it's not really there. You know what I mean? It's, it's, you will experience it, but it's in heaven. The promise is given to establish in our hearts the reality that God has in store something greater than this life. If this is the kingdom, if this is the best that God can do for us, wow then the kingdom is filled with hardship and suffering and pain. And if I read my Bible correctly, the kingdom is the opposite of that. Listen to Paul in Romans 8:18. 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. If you know that Christ will return to right all the wrongs, to execute the righteous judgment and grant us to reign with him, then this present painful momentary experience is worth enduring. If you know that the return of Christ is the ultimate leveler, then every moment of suffering is worth enduring. But if your hope is right now, I don't know what is better than this then. Let me finish with this. There is a limitation given to who this promise is made. Verse 5 again, James 2 verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor to the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom to be abounding in faith and to have the future promise of that which will be fulfilled, the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? The promises is made For those who are actively loving God. This is not for church attenders. Those who come now and don't come at all. Who come only on special occasions. These are those who are in the habit of loving God. And showing their love for God in faithful obedience. The poor in mind here are those who love their Savior and who obey their God. Those are the ones that will receive the kingdom. So not all who say Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom. But those who obey my words. What does it mean to love God? Simply to obey his words. This promise promise is made to those who are habitually loving God through their obedience that means if you are loving God as a habit of life then you have abundant faith to endure the overwhelming nature of trials and you have a future reward that is waiting for you in other words you can endure life until the reward comes Sinners, however, do not have this hope. You don't have this hope just because you are poor. You must be loving God in order to have this hope. The only way you can be loving God is if God chose you to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. I call on you, therefore, to seek forgiveness and to call out to God for mercy. So that you may be saved. What are the implications of verse five? Well, it's clearly stated in verse six and in seven. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and drag uh, are the ones who drag you into the courts? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? You're going to have to come back for the explanation of that passage. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful to you for such great grace and kindness upon us. We know we don't deserve it. We know we don't deserve abundant faith. And we know we don't deserve to be heirs of the kingdom. But you have called us nonetheless. You have chosen us to be abounding in faith and to share in the riches which is still future for us. Pray for those who do not love you. Who claim to love you but live as if you do not exist. Who claim to love you but have not committed to you in faithful obedience. Who claim to love you but have no idea what it means to submit under your lordship. Lord, we pray that you would change their lives. Save them. That they may become yours. We pray for those who are uncertain of their salvation. Bring assurance. If the reason for the uncertainty is because of sin, then grant them victory over their sin. If it's because they do not know you, the Lord, then call them and save them and make them yours. Thank you for your grace. And thank you for the hope that you give in your word. Pray that it would change our hearts, that we would walk faithfully and obediently before you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.